Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. My name is Toby. I'm 17 years old, and I started and ran an international drug ring. Oh. <laughs> I'm a scholarship winner. Welcome, Toby. No money, no connections. A pretender, a poser. Preppies. They all dressed the same, looked the same. A door was open. Careful. I decided to go through it. Hey, everyone. We're so excited to be here with both Travis and Joe from one of my favorite films, The Preppy Wonderful Connection. Wonderful film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on the way here, we're, we're in Hoboken, by the way, and we're going to show you some, uh, we'll put some video up on our website about some of the great things you can see outside the window here in Hoboken. What do we have here? I'm going to show you guys the alleyway that Marlon Brando ran down at the end of On the Waterfront. Okay, but then wow. nobody's going to want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to put that great stuff up there, but we're really, really happy to be here. And this is Hollister here, and I saw The Preppy Connection at the Hampton Film Festival while O'Toole was off seeing some... Uh, I was meeting Hillary Knight, who is the illustrator of the beloved children's series, Eloise. And isn't that fabulous? But I <laughs> went to the Preppy Connection. Those of you who listen to us uh, regularly know that I'm the one who's usually the negative Nelly, and... <sighs> On the way out here, everybody said, well, you wrote a love letter about the movie, you know, et cetera. It is probably one of the best films I've seen, certainly in the year 2015. I Thank just, you. and then you kindly, Joe, sent me an email thanking me for the um, for the review. And I, again, will say it was truly an authentic point of view on my part. So we're just really excited to have some time with you guys here today to talk about what you did and how you did it and everything else. And we know we found out you went to Choate. So is that the reason? I didn't go to Choate. Oh, you didn't go to Choate? I went to Lawrenceville. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Were you, I, the, were you the guy selling drugs at Lawrenceville? I wasn't. I knew some guys who did. I was not the guy. They just walked by them in the hallway. I was, just, <laughs> I was fascinated by the story. I um, was more like Toby than Ellis, you know, at Lawrenceville. I came to Lawrenceville and it was culture shock for me. And... Um, you know, there was this sort of, this, this, you know, there was a a certain group of people and you wanted access to that group and you wanted to, like any kid who goes to high school, you wanted to figure out how do you fit in. And I think what captivated me about the story was here was this kid who was a scholarship winner, had very little money, came from a working class background. And then he sort of catapulted to the top of the social strata in the school that he was in. And it was an adventure. It was an adventure story. Um, the classic adventure story. I mean, if you look in the movie, you see they're doing coke off of a copy of the Odyssey. He went on his own little Odyssey, and that captivated me. I was just fascinated with the story, and then it just disappeared. It popped up from everyone, your mind or in general. In general, yeah. I mean, everyone was talking about it, and then the story just disappeared for years. But I'd never forgotten about it. So then I went and I tracked down the person that was involved in the story, and I spoke to him about it and talked with him at length about the experience, looked at his court notes, looked at all the transcripts, looked at everything that went on with him, wrote the draft, he read the draft. So he was very much involved in the genesis of the story at the beginning, um, but he prefers to stay at a distance. And why is story. that? Because he just wants he's to be part of it. moved on in his yeah. life, and he's done great things in his life now, and he's... Mm-hmm. Um, He's a, a prominent attorney and animal rights activist. He's done a lot for animal rights. As a matter of fact, 
he was arrested. He's been arrested about a dozen times <laughs> protesting. But the first rights. time was the best. The first time was for a different reason, but then he decided to take that, you know, that uh-huh. will and motivation and put it towards something really productive. Well, he was never <clears throat> not, in my opinion, he was never not likable. Never. No. You know, um, which also goes to show, though, that, you know, as been pointed out to me, I've discussed the film with a number of people, and it's been pointed out to me that you don't have to make the choices he made. And there's nothing to feel sorry for him about, but there was something about him, and probably it was also the way it was played. You first cast Evan Peters mm-hmm. and Bella um, Heathcote to play Lucy and to- and Toby. And prior to that, actually, Dakota Johnson <laughs> oh. and Rooney Mara. Oh. Yeah. You know, with an independent film of this size, so many things have to happen all at once at the right moment for the film to actually be made. So you have financiers, you have producers, you have your agency, all these different people involved. And you have a casting list and you have to bring it all together at the right moment with the actor's availability, with the financiers being excited about who you've cast. As a matter of fact, I mean, it's funny. No one knew who Rooney Mara was when I cast her. Was that after the girl with the dragon tattoo? No, it was before. Oh, so really early I had a great meeting with her. Mm -hmm. She's you know, amazing. Yeah. And uh, she said, oh, by the way, I'm up for this part. I don't know if I'm going to get it. And I said, what's it called? What's the movie called? She said, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And I said, (laughs) (laughs) bye-bye. So no one could have played the part better Mm -hmm. than Lucy. I'm guessing you haven't done this before. It's not going to hurt. Lucy does it all. I mean, she really does it all. And um, Lucy sought out the part. She was so committed. And um, she wrote me a letter, she was emailing me, she was, you know, pursuing this part. And I auditioned her three times. And the thing that was amazing about Lucy was how open to direction she was and That's is. That's a great trait at an actor. Yes. We yeah. actually did a we did an audition work session on Skype. Oh, wow. So she had someone working with her and I was directing them on Skype. And I saw her performance actually transform as we were on the Skype call. So that's was that because it, I, mean, I was going to say, did you do it that way because because of money constraints and you couldn't bring everybody together long enough to? Oh, I, I could not have flown Lucy out, or we just didn't have the money to do mm-hmm. that. That's and a lot of people actually are using Skype that way. Well, and it's very exciting to announce that you've got distribution. Yes, we're going to be putting this all. You know, we're going to be doing some video Huge. around this and the podcast uh, to coincide with the distribution you're getting. Congratulations. And just walk us through and maybe Travis, we want you to weigh in on that part too, in terms of getting distribution and the roller coaster ride and God knows what else it takes. But, um, people really want to understand how a film like this that deserves distribution, what it has to go through to get it. It's really about getting your film seen. That's really what it's about. So you hope that you go to a festival with enough profile that distributors will attend screenings and they'll actually take the festival seriously enough that it's, you know, they treat it like a marketplace. So with Preppy, we went to the Hamptons Film Festival. Um, and what we did was we just tried to invite through personal connections as many distributors as we could to the screening because the Hamptons isn't necessarily considered a marketplace festival. But it's starting to actually change. That's starting to change. And I think it's because of how the Hamptons falls in the film calendar um, that some of the films that didn't go to Sundance and Tribeca and South by Southwest, they're kind of making their way to the Hamptons. And distributors are seeing that the Hamptons is curating some films of quality. 
So there are some sales coming out of the Hamptons, and this is one of them. And we got picked up by a major distributor. Major's right. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. And um, IFC, good choice on your part. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we had someone from IFC came to the to the festival. We threw a party after the film to get everybody. I'm sorry, we didn't. Did you? <laughs> I was still with Hillary. Did Knight. you miss that <laughs> invitation? <laughs> I, I, if I had known, you would have been there. We would have been having margaritas. <laughs> and then um, simultaneously, my agency, ICM had a distributor screening in L.A., and they had about 35 distributors looking at the film. So I get a call from the agent in L.A., and he says, good news, no one has walked out of the screening. <laughs> Wait, that's good news? That's, that's what <laughs> I said. One of those things, like, that's what you're going to tell <laughs> I me? I said, what? The he said, we had 35 <laughs> distributors, no one has walked out. So said, is, is that, that unusual? I mean, that's, <clears> really, I that's a shocking statement. Apparently, it is five minutes. They actually, distributors uh-huh. will get up and walk out in the first five minutes yep. or sit and look at their phone, uh-huh. you know, get up, leave, actually say things, comment on things. You know, uh-huh. it can actually be a bit of a blood sport. Then uh-huh. we started getting inquiries from different distributors. We actually, some big studios were interested at different points. Um, and then we narrowed it down to IFC films. They gave the best offer. There's got to be more criteria than the best offer. It, I mean, well, is the, there is. Yeah. And, and really, um, it's the best <clears throat> offer. And by best offer, I mean they all sort of stay at a certain level. But IFC Films, for me as a filmmaker, being a part of the IFC Films, you know, name and the, their their slate, that's prestigious to me. And I was excited about that. You Good know. for you. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. But this is not your first film. This is your third film. Mm-hmm. You've written and directed all of the films that you've done, which I always think is very interesting because I always think when, when someone's writing and they're also going to direct, then they're writing with a clear visual in their mind as to how it's exactly going to be mm-hmm. played out. Do you think that makes it easier or harder? It well it makes it easier in that it, it you know it really you do have a strong vision in your mind of what you're going to shoot. It makes it harder in that you have earlier drafts where you've left things on the cutting floor and they're all, all, everything is so near and dear to you. You know, it's, it's, I I remember different iterations of preppy and things that I cut that maybe I wish I had back. It's just never, it's a, (laughs) you never sort of settle into a place of satisfaction when it's your own work. I could keep working on preppy right now. I could call up the cast and like, let's keep exploring. Let's keep, you know. The rewrite a really interesting TV series. A Netflix nine-part series. I'm down for that. <laughs> <laughs> Travis 100%. is laughing. You know. Do you have anybody in Netflix? Uh, he's down for that. I don't want me. Exactly. So do you have any, any, any thoughts on that or any desire to do television now? I would love to do television. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love House of Cards. I'm a big binge watcher. I have to, uh, you know, I have to sort of like apportion my time when these series come out because I know I'm just going to do two or three episodes a night, not sleep. Oh, that is, no, no, no. That is <laughs> not. No, no. I think we need to redefine binge watcher. A oh, binge watcher you, does not watch three episodes a night. How many do you night. do? Well, you start watching and then you stop watching when it's finished. Oh, you do? Oh, my <laughs> yes, God. Yes. Hollister is one of the few people I've wow. ever met. You wow. could easily live under house arrest. That's you amazing. Really no, I, mean, I, I have often Netflix. thought that it would uh-huh. be really wonderful to be in jail because uh-huh. look at all the free time you have to sit there and do exactly what uh-huh. you want to do and not have to be accountable to anybody for anything. Right. Okay, The War Within. We're going to talk about a okay. cast film for just a second. Okay. It came out in, I think, 2004, right? 2005. 2005. And you wrote it and directed it. Yes. And directed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
obviously, were you sitting here in Hoboken on 9-11? I mean, I was where did York. this Where did this come from? That, that I was in, lived in the city at that time. Okay. Um, and I had actually lost friends at Cantor Fitzgerald. I used to be actually a bond trader, so I knew oh. all of these guys at Cantor. And um, it was just, uh, I mean, for everyone in New York, it was absolutely devastating. It went on for months and months and months. And there was a lot of... You know, I had just embarked on a filmmaking career, and for me, there was just a lot of questions that I had, and a lot of soul searching, and um, I became fascinated with the topic. And I felt like, okay, I have the opportunity to make a film. I want to explore this issue. I want to create a dialogue. I want people to examine what's going on. Um, I had a, a Muslim writing partner, um, and we just, uh, you know, we embarked on the journey. It was difficult. It was a difficult film to make. It was about two and a half years of my life. It was interesting because <laughs> the weekend that the film came out, this is when they were doing all these different terror alerts in New York City and there was this scare on the subway system. There's a lot of backlash yeah. against the film. And right when I was invited to CNN to talk about the film with um, Aaron Brown, they pulled the film from the theaters and they didn't support it. Um, and, you know, I, I regret that they didn't let it you know, start the dialogue that it was intended to start. My friends, by the time you read this, I will be gone. You are Americans now, and America has been good to you. It has become your home, the country you love. I know you cannot understand why I have done what I will do, what I have to do, but ignorance is not innocence. I think it was just a little too soon, you know. Oh, totally. Yeah, yes. exactly. Uh, timing is everything, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. it's true. Yeah, it's true. It was just a difficult film to make, you know, because at various points you're wondering why you're doing it, and you, you know, for me, being so emotionally close to what had happened, um, you, know, you feel guilty. Mm -hmm. Why am I, you know, what am I doing? Why am I exploring this this topic, you know? And it was just a really delicate balance. Even talking to people, I may mean, talk to you about it two years later, and I feel... Well, you can see it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I feel like even Pearl Harbor, if you look at the history of the movies that came out about Pearl Harbor, it was always 15, 20 years afterward, when the generation had just gotten far enough along that they could stomach, you know, the, the reverberation of it all again. The really interesting moment for me on The War Within, like one quick story about it, we were shooting in Grand Central, and we had no control over the location. So uh, the lead actor is walking into Grand Central Station with a prop suicide vest and a wire coming down mm -hmm. his hand with a button in his palm. Were you there? And this was during the Republican National Convention. <laughs> At the same time, of course. <laughs> the entire Grand Central Station is ringed by National Guard troops. They're actually standing along the walls. I don't know if you remember. It was so, the security presence was so heavy. It was huge, yeah. So, um... The lead actor, Ayad, was walking into this waiting room, and it's, it's, it occurred to me that they don't know what we're shooting. And, you know, let's say an off-duty police officer is coming off the train and just happens to see him with a button in his hand, he's going to shoot him. And our, I guess our producers hadn't really, we hadn't thought this out. Oh, so I, I said, you know, <laughs> I think we should talk to the National Guard and explain this. I went to the, the captain, I explained what was going on. He said, yeah, no problem. It's a movie, right? I said, yeah, it's a movie. He said, we'll, we'll take care of it. So as he's walking in in that final shot to blow up Grand Central Station, he's actually flanked off camera by two National Guard soldiers. 
which was really moving for me, you know, that they were protecting our right to explore the issue, to create this dialogue. Now, NYPD came and caught on what was going on. They said, get the hell out of this station. Did they say <laughs> They threw us out. Yeah. And so, and it was, a, there was a debate between NYPD and the National Guard about whether we deserve to be in the station. And um, the NYPD caught us on some bureaucratic thing, you know, something about like our permit didn't say this or that, but they wanted us out, you know. Um, Is that when it became so hard to film in Grand Central? Well, <laughs> we had to actually then, I got, I got one shot in Grand Central. That was it, that one shot. And then we had to go and rent a bank, an empty bank um, downtown and cop and just sort of fake Grand Central Station. Well, if you think about it too, though, the NY, you know, the New York Police Department and their role in 9-11, you can't, you know, we don't want to see you doing any, you know, in other words, versus the National Guard who weren't really there that day. It's sort of one of those I things where it. I, I, I get it. New York. I definitely No, I had a great yeah, conversation exactly. with the, 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 the captain from mm -hmm. the police department and he's like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, buddy, but no. And I, you know, I understood yeah. You know, as a I mean, Yorker, I understand it, but still, like, okay, please, yeah. You know. The show, Quantico, by the way, a big chunk of it is now taking place based on a terrorist in Grand Central Station. Oh, really? So when you're telling, you know, here you are 10 years earlier, and they filmed it all in Grand Central Station. You should definitely watch the last couple of episodes so you can see how they played out. But what an amazing space to oh, be having incredible. that kind of action. It's really fabulous. So, all right, all right, Jack Kerouac. I mean, is that your guy? Is that your American Saint? Oh, you American yeah. Saint. Yeah. I, yeah, I love Jack Kerouac. I, well, you had to, because when I looked at American Saint, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a Kerouac. We have to make Joe hold up his award from the Hamptons Film Festival right, hold it up. for American Saint. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like the cows. Yeah. I like cows too. Yeah, the cows. You know, in Japanese. Moo, yeah, is a word. Yeah? Yeah, that's M-U, moo. Moo. In Japanese. Uh-huh. It means nothing. Kerouac. Yes. Two sentences. He was just a free spirit. He was a free spirit. He was an artist. He, I think he was insatiably curious about life. I was at Columbia getting my master's, and... You in know, psychology or in film and started reading, you know, I had read on the road, but then again, you know, you're at Columbia, you're sort of immersed in the history of the beats because they were very present in that area and Kerouac's relationship with Ginsburg and Burroughs and all these different characters. And I was drawn to his work and there was just something about his work that was so free and unencumbered and he could just explore and write and he wasn't concerned with form. Um, who was the, I forget which author, it was Capote that said he was just a typist, but he was so much more than that. He was doing so much more. And I was just drawn to him. I was drawn to his poetry, his use of language, and how that led to a physical journey for him. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the film idea came from, was just go off with these two characters who are very beat-like characters, um, played by Kevin Corrigan and Vincent Schiavelli and then mix them with real people. And that's where I met my wife, because she was getting her master's in film as well. Our relationship has always been a creative one. What's your writing process when you have three people co-writing? Al 
outlining for a very long time. And that's collaborative. Red yes. pens. Lots of red pens. And does yeah. somebody take a stab at the first we, draft and then you pass it off? Or do you have female-male character splits? Well, we, we outline for... Over a year. Yeah. There's about 36 full outlines. Wow. And when I Over say full, a year? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, these outlines were 60 pages long. It's got to stave off a lot of problems, though. Yes. The Death Valley of Act Two, and, and then, yeah. and then I took that outline, sat down with it, and um, got the first draft out in less than a month. Wow! Because the outline was, it was so, so preg- clear. pregnant, and even pregnant with dialogue at different points, so made it so much easier. Did you come east to do film, or? Well, it's a strange, strange story. I just to jump back quickly to the War Within. I was. I was about 18 years old when I saw it, and I was so disturbed by this movie, The War Within. Three days later, I was thinking about it, and it really just was eating at me. I was very close to joining the Air Force, and that was something that I thought I wanted to do. And after I saw that, and, you know, I love film, and I've been making movies since I was, like, 12, you know, with Handycam, and then decided to move to New York. And I, I came here on a whim. A friend of mine called me. He said, I need a, I need a roommate. So I came over. And I got a job at a bar, and the bar manager started asking me, like, what do you want to do? Why are you here? Why'd you come out here? I said, well, you know, I'm into making movies. I'm into film school. She's like, oh, I have this friend you should meet. His name's Joe Costello. <laughs> Did you know immediately who that was? I knew who he was, yeah. Yeah. And so I said, all right. I went, <laughs> that man who described so much. I got on a train, and I went to Hoboken, which I'd never been to before. Took the path over here. Me too, here today, yes. And, uh, yeah, we sat in the office across the street, uh-huh. actually, and he, he probed me and asked me a whole bunch of questions and asked me if I could start interning the next next week. And that was a long time ago. That that was, was, how long ago was that? That was 2009, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What a great story. And Weird, it's like right? one degree of separation, That's for sure. Strange. Funny because you're... Joe's not working for the recruiting office of the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so what producers inspire you, Travis? I don't know if I have one set producer. I like someone who's hands-on, who can shift from department to department, has a, has an understanding of how everything works at, at the smallest level. I'll give you an example of the kind of producer Travis is. When we were doing the opening airport sequence in Preppy, we, did, we didn't have a, uh, what is that, a pedestrian automated walkway we couldn't we showed up and it was broken great opening so scene travis built these little like pedestrian uh platforms with uh skateboard wheels and everything you so we we're pulling them along which is actually harder than you think to keep people you know them stable oh, sure, because steady. the minute you jerk it at wow. all they're they're, they're it down. doesn't look yeah. like a real shot you well, know? dead man walking we I showed mean, up to the airport the and we saw that the, they had these pedestrian walkways and we're very excited the guy says oh they don't work the guy was telling us that in 1984, they put them in, and then they just didn't put the motors in. So they're sitting there <laughs> And this is a 30 30 years independent film, right? So I have all this coverage planned, and I have half a day to shoot this, because we shot the film in 19 days. Wow. The okay. Preppy Connection yes. was shot in 19 days. Yes. I can and we, did have, we had a couple of pickup days. days afterward, yeah. but the brunt of the shooting was 19 days, which is... Wow. Very fast. So, All hands on deck. So I show up days. and this thing is broken. I know what that means because everyone has to figure out well, what are we going to do. And the first thing someone says, "Well, you don't really need the oh, you do the it's walk." Perfect. And they said, "No, we, we I need that." And then he's standing there and he's like, "All right, let me let me go. To, is there a Home Depot?" Or here? <laughs> 
Uh, seriously. <laughs> Midwestern people know how they to make things it's happen. True. Yeah, exactly. it's true. That's true. He's yeah. like a human Swiss yeah. army knife. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was like that, you know? Okay, so d- directors that inspire you. Um, Scorsese, Kubrick, um, Herzog, very much Werner Herzog, um, uh, Mike Lee, uh, Terrence Malick, Robert Altman. And what about writers? Cassavetes, what? very much. Oh, yeah. um, a, a Woman Under the Influence is was one of the most jarring films I've ever seen in my life. I would aspire to do something like that on film. Well, see, and with Gina Rollins, you I was and Ashley, say, yeah. these, you know, marital collaborations. Yes. Yeah, but I do think the Cassavetes, part of his strength was his collaboration with his wife. I yes, do. I felt 100%. like he knew her so well that he was able to bring her into the scene in a perfect perfect comedy. She's, she's genius. She's a genius uh-huh, filmmaker yeah. in her own right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up watching Gloria with her. Oh, wow. Remember that, yeah, that movie? Of course I do, yeah. She's amazing. I didn't understand. So the first good. time I saw that film, I remember I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite get all the nuances. It's got so many layers. You have to watch it more than once yeah. for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Screenwriters that you really, really covet? I, uh, Got excited about filmmaking when I read William Goldman's book. O'Toole's favorite book? I which love oh my God. Mm-hmm. Great book. Great book. And it had Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yeah. Kid in the book. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I'm so curious about how do you write a screenplay. There it is. Flash forward years later at Columbia, and they had a master class in screenwriting <gasps> taught by no, William Goldman. No, you Goldman. met him? I took a class. Wow. At his apartment. Oh, okay. Yes. How oh, I know. cool is that? It was so cool. It was so cool I had to like really not geek out when I got into his apartment <laughs> is, because I was going to scare the man. <laughs> is that where he wrote The Princess Bride, which started as a series of bedtime stories for it's his kids? That's where he wrote everything. Wow. It was really cool. And uh, Oliver Stone, absolutely, as a screenwriter. He's written some of the great you know, films that people don't realize he was a writer well before Such he was as? a director. Um, he was the screenwriter Scarface. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And he's a, a director who writes his own material. Okay, now, if you go to sleep and you have a dream, and it's who do you want to direct? What actor, both female and male, would you kill to direct? Robert De Niro. In what genre? Drama, comedy, dramedy? In whatever he connected to creatively, I would love to do something like where he just wants to go in deep and tackle a character. That would be an incredible ride. Um, all right, now, what about a female person? Who would you like to direct? Robin Wright Penn. Oh. She plays the same role every Although time. No, she doesn't. Like, have to a message in a bot. We've argued about this over and over again. Come on. She's Princess just... right. It all comes back to she, William Goldman. She's amazing. She's an amazing actor. She mm-hmm. can do anything. Well, The Princess Bride's the one I gave I, I don't feel like yeah. House of Cards is remote. That's, I think that's a completely transformational role mm-hmm. for her. Yep. I don't think that she's you that character. You and O'Toole agree on this. I do not. I don't think she's that character at all. Mm-hmm. I think she's a much... Uh, she plays a much she was softer, married to more Sean vulnerable Penn. character more easily. Are you kidding? Of course she's that character. Yeah, but I think yeah. she's actually working with that to transform herself. I think that's She's coming she into a seat of power in herself as an artist I've never seen before. It's impressive. Uh-huh. I, I, I mean, I'm... I'm I love, no, I love to... Do, you know, we all can agree to disagree. Yeah, I, and I But love, I'm right, and you're... You know, yeah, exactly. I understand. <laughs> see, what, see what I have to put up with? <laughs> Other than that, it's fine. Do you I have completely a defer to you. Where she can star with Robert De Niro in the same movie? That'd be a great pairing. Well, she was with Jack Nicholson and played off of him nicely in The Pledge. That would be nice. I, you know, I don't nice know pair. The Pledge. I'm going to go watch The Pledge so He's that I can be a director, by the way, that I really admire also. Who? Sean Penn. Yeah? Yeah. 
Okay, so Sean Penn, uh, Sean Penn Wright. I mean, um, Robin, Robin, <laughs> Robin yeah. Wright, Robin, Robin no, Wright, yeah. no longer Penn. Robin, Robin Wright. Okay, I, you know, I wouldn't have picked that for you. I'm not sure who I would have picked, but edgy, good. Well, actually, if you look at the character Lucy, if if you know, if you, I, no wait, I, you know what? I now I make mm-hmm. the connection. You're absolutely right. I can see that. Yep. I absolutely can. And I think Thomas Mann. I wrote mm-hmm. in my review that for me, Thomas. Man, you know, I, I, let's face it, I'm a little out there and a little ADD and, and who knows what else. But <laughs> Thomas Mann does ground me in a way when I see him on the screen yes. where, where I don't even have to eat my popcorn when I'm watching. <laughs> it's just one of those yeah. calming. He's got an amazing face, but also he knows how to use it where I have no idea he's using it. I knew it would change everything. Change me. And it did. I mean, I think some of the camera work that was done with him was much better than me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. No offense, no offense. But in Joe's movie, The Preppy Connection, Thomas Mann won for Best Breakthrough Performer. Yes, variety. Yeah, mm-hmm. because, yeah. From Variety. Now, did you direct that camera work, or is that your cinematographer? Was he part I, of it? I mean, I shot-listed with him, and um, <laughs> we would joke around that we were going to, at different points, we, we would... Uh, we just improvise, and we called it Bob Rossing after the painter who made little happy bushes. <laughs> so we would just like let the camera go and follow these these guys and follow the actors, and in the, it, particularly in the scene in the apartment when they're partying and things kind of go off the rails. Um, we had a two camera setup. The actors were improvising in the other room, and I could hear them on the cans. I could hear them going through improvised lines, and I just liked where it was going. So I went into the next room and I said, listen, what you're doing here, let's just keep going with this. And they understood. These these young actors were amazing. And they were kept improvising. They came into the room. I was behind one cinematographer. Brett, the DP, was on his camera. And we were just moving with them. And sometimes we crossed, but we, we, we stayed with the, with the actors. I would gently nudge him and point at something to, to shoot for emphasis. But that's how we shot the whole scene. I mean, it was fluid and organic. Very good. And everybody was making choices. The the director of photography, the actors, me, and it all came together. That was the the most sort of loose experience of the film in terms of how a scene came together. Other times it was very choreographed. We had a story, you know, shot shot lists, um, sometimes some crude storyboards, and we knew exactly what we were shooting. The other thing that I thought was so genius about the way you wrote it was that, so here's my central character, right? Here's Toby. And then there's, it was all about so many different relationships. His relationship with his townie friend. His relationship with the, the, the nice person from school. His relationship with his mother. His, you know, there were so, all these things were about mm-hmm. these relationships. But what was so brilliantly written about it is that they each had equal value. You know, sometimes I think... You know, movies and relationships are so very important, but sometimes the relationship with the mother is going to carry 40%, and the relationship with the friend at school is only going to be 10%, mm-hmm. and the relationship with the townie person is going to be 5%. You had equal value to give me enough about all of these relationships for me to really understand Toby in a major way. I think I said that really well. Great. <laughs> Nicely done, Alistair. Uh, no, yes. but I don't think that's easy to do when you're writing. And I wondered if when you were writing, you were actually sitting there saying, okay, here's his relationship with his mother, and this is how we're going to establish that, and here's his relationship 
you know, you should just say yes because then you're going to sound no, well, no, smarter. I mean, that's actually that's part of our process. Okay. So yay. what we do when we're writing, it will actually break down uh, the arcs of each. You know, Toby with his mother, Toby with Fidel, Toby with Dennis, and we'll look at each arc separately and see how it's sort of arcing over the entire screenplay. And you know, when we wrote the the final draft to go into shooting. Maybe it was a little imbalanced. It might have been slightly more on the mother, on his relationship with his mother. But then when we went into the edit, we had to strike that balance. We had I was going to say, I thought Lucy got, if anybody got a little edge, it was Lucy. But yeah. here's what's so great about when you, someone does that really well like you did. And that is, at the end, I just wanted more of each relationship. I never felt like I'd finished the meal. You know, I don't believe in sequels. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe The Godfather, but other right. than that, not so much. Two, so, not three. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, totally. And four, let's even talk about what that, you know, why would you do that? But, Are they discussing that? <laughs> no. Um, but, do you know, I, the grandfather. I, I, hope, I hope you know how hard I think that is to do and how very few people do it. I mean, can you think you of know, anybody else who's done that really well? I was going to say something else that was done really well with the screenplay in the Preppy Connection, which set everything up beautifully, is how interesting it is to watch characters make tough decisions. And so at each moment in the script, you think, okay, is he going to try to score these kids drugs? Is he not going to go to Choate? Is he going to stay home? You know, I in thought bed? he was going to flush the drugs Is down. he going to yeah, flush them You know, in the airplane? Oh, you, you thought that he... Okay, we can't say what happens, okay. but I believed... Uh, I believed. I was. I had clarity on what was going to happen a number of times in that film, and I wasn't always right. But it was right. riveting to watch the character make the decision actively and then the consequences of each decision. That's great. You know? Consequences suck, don't yeah. they? Yes. Right. We've made this whole world whole world come undone. Really? You know, yes. um, something else that I just was so happy to see, was it the Barcelona International Film Festival where you won for best editing? Yes. Talk about the editing process a little bit. We were actually cutting while we were shooting. Oh, so wow. So I would shoot. Does know, anybody else in do your, that? In your 19 days? Some, you know who uh, I, I'd heard about that process from was uh, Doug Lyman. Oh. Director Doug Lyman. No, yes, what is he doing? Mr. Mrs. Smith. He, oh, I hate that movie. Identity. He did yeah. a movie called, a long oh, time ago called movie. Go. He came and spoke about his editing process, and he said, I like to have my editor on set. I like to cut right away. Um, I like to see how things are cutting. And, you know, and at that time, I, you know, digital, you know, filmmaking wasn't as advanced. And sort of the older school thinking was that's sort of a weakness. Like, you have to just, you know, shoot and then you cut later on and there's a process to it a protocol i think it's really smart to cut while you're shooting because you can kind of see how things are coming together so we had pretty much an assembly. in 19 she's right I in know, 19 days how do you do that i think joe should be doing time management seminars <laughs> like in 19 days you can shoot edit it was intense the editor uh Gioc- giacomo ambrosini was the fastest editor i've ever seen just super super fast when he's on the board, you, should, you hear popping, and he's slamming things together. You like it like this? No, how about like this? Slamming things together, right? I mean, how fast is Giacomo? Was he Amazing. there while you were filming, or did he think that would I was on the phone thinking. with him, mm-hmm. so the DIT was sending him footage, mm-hmm. and Giacomo was cutting as we were shooting. And he would send me a link, and I would see the scenes and how they were you know, cutting together. And it was just sort of like, I mean, most people watch dailies on set and and but this was just watching kind of rough assemblies and i think it's becoming more common now i think a lot of people why, why would it become more common because you? you can do it i mean it you know if you're if you're shooting an independent film and 
you have limited resources and we had 19 days to shoot it and you have a location, if you're shooting something and it's not cutting and it doesn't work, you have the location right there. Mm -hmm. You can pivot and go and get what you need and go back. And did you do that a lot? I did that once. I had to reshoot one scene. It just wasn't working. Which one? The, the hazing scene. We were way, so concerned very, with the safety. Scene. We were so uh, concerned. Way, I, 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 it was, it was, a, you know, it was a popcorn put down scene. You know, like yeah. it was very, very distressing. Poor Thomas Mann, that that's the scene he's got to redo. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, we did it the first time, and we were so concerned as we should be with the safety of the actors that we didn't quite convincingly enough when it cut. So we had to go back and do it again. I just want to ask this honest question. It's a yes or no. You're not allowed to do anything other than yes okay. or no. Do you want to be a $100 million budget filmmaker? No. I think that as you increase your budget, as the film gets bigger and bigger, it becomes a more political animal. There's more artifice. It becomes a corporate entity. You're talking about $100 million. No. <laughs> and you know, I can't and even, from a bond I can't even you know, imagine. Uh-huh. And I, I actually, was going to say, does that a day, right? Uh-huh. But Whatever. I, I did $100 million trades. You know, I mean, that's, you know, I, I mean. That's I, a I, huge I, responsibility, by the way. Just doing that trade was a huge responsibility when you realize how much money is moving from one place to the and other. And you realize how much time it took them to get that money. Right. Yeah. So when you do a film of that size, I, I say no, but, you know, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the process. What What is a director? What What choices does a director have at the at a hundred million dollar level? And I know what Christopher Nolan. What his choices are. What would my choices be? If I were in in a, in a situation where I was completely constrained, it was financially constrained. The creative choices were being dictated to me by a studio or a committee or executives. I know I would be a miserable human being. I don't want to go through that. I don't think art would come from that, you know. Maybe okay, commerce. Okay, you would. seem to be a very mellow guy. This is for Travis. Is he a mellow guy on set? He is a force. He pushes you and pushes you and pushes everyone around him to do the best they can do. But nobody's mad at him for doing it. No, everyone loves Joe. We're all grateful that you're an independent filmmaker because I think it's better film. And so really, we really appreciate you both sitting with us and talking today, too. This was so um, much fun. Can you, you know. see if that's Robert De Niro? I saw it is. <laughs> hey, Bobby. 